moving uh, statement. There is no other king. And actually, we're going to be getting to that in a minute. And I want us to really grapple with and understand what that means. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, we come into the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who has died on the cross for our salvation. That we might find forgiveness. That we might receive him into our lives. That we might become his we might worship him, that we might serve him, that we might love him. And our God, it's our desire that we might now meet him here. So Lord Jesus, we would pray that you would speak in your authoritative voice, just as you did so long ago. By your spirit, Lord, let every person in this room know in their hearts that they have heard from you. Let us encounter the King of Kings here today, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, at our annual uh, meeting a little while ago, we introduced an idea, some ideas of the larger plan that we will be presenting at the end of May after the story campaign is done. So look out, IPC. It's an ambitious and even an aggressive plan, and it's coming your way. But one of the things that we talked about was uh, our organizing some trips to the Holy Land. The idea is that when people go to Israel, particularly, uh, although there are other locations as well, uh, they are profoundly impacted in a spiritual way. It's transformative. They see where Scripture happened, and they see it differently, and God can move in very profound ways. Well, what normally happens is that uh, the pastor goes for about a six day uh, trip ahead of everyone else and comes back and we plan a trip and everybody else who wants to go goes, you know, 30, 40 people. Um, and I was thinking, you know, why would I bother going for six days? I'm going to see it later on when I go back. I don't need to go twice, certainly in one year. And I was sharing this with my brother Paul, who's a minister uh, as well and who has done this several times and seen the impact uh, and the spiritual development of, of his people. And he said, no, 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 Chris, you got to go. You got to go. Uh, and I said, why? He said, well, you know, you really need to encounter the locations that you're going to be at uh, when the whole church group goes so that you can do devotionals and teachings that will just bring to life the reality of where you are. I said, Paul, I know the Bible. Come on. I've lived in this thing for like decades. Do I really need to go? He said, yeah, let me give you an example. He said, you know when Jesus... Set, took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. If you've read chapter 25, you know that's how it begins. Um, he he, he uh, took them to a place. Um, and, and it was in the, that location, by the way, where he said, who do, the, who, 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 do, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, the place he took them to in Caesarea Philippi uh, was to a temple, a pagan temple, which stood behind a... Um, in front of a large cliff, the foundation is still there. And this temple was used for pagan worship, the, the god of Pan, for example. Baal had once been worshipped there. The new worship of Caesar was taking place there. Syrian gods were worshipped there. And what they would do is people would sacrifice to these false gods, of course, and then they would take the carcasses or whatever remained of the sacrifice to this huge cave-like cavern in the side of this rock face 
And they would take whatever was left from the sacrifice and they would dump it into this deep, deep, deep hole, like really, really deep. At the bottom of this cavernous hole, there was a river that took the remains out to the Sea of Galilee, down the Jordan River, into the Dead Sea, and be dealt with. Um, after, after Peter said what Peter had said, Jesus said, you are Peter, speaking of a little stone that you can throw. I looked this up again this week, being a good Protestant that I am. You know, and little stones, little Peters can get thrown, little, little things. You are Peter, but on this rock, meaning this huge outcrop of stone, cliffs, uh, cliff face, for example. Think about the context. He said, on this rock, I will build my church, speaking of himself, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. First time the word church is used in the New Testament. Let me tell you this. As people were worshiping these, this multitude of gods and as they were throwing the remains of sacrifices <clears throat> in this huge cavern down to be flushed away, you know what that huge cavern, deep, deep, deep hole was called? Anybody? Well, then you better come to Israel next year and we'll figure it out. Because <laughs> I'm not going to... No, I'll tell you. <laughs> that huge cavern was called the Gates of Hades. And all of a sudden... The, the context provides greater meaning for the words of Jesus. See, he, he's, saying, he's saying all these people are um, worshiping all these gods. Who do they say I am? But then more importantly, who do you say that I am to his disciples? Am I just one of these multitude of gods that people worship or am I somehow different? And Peter gets the answer right. And we're going to dig into this, but the question essentially that I'm, I'm going to pose to you today, the Word of God poses you, to you today, is very, very simple. It, it, is, um, it comes to us in the words of Christ himself, and he speaks them here again today through his spokesperson. Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? All right. Let me read this for you. Let me read it to you. It's page um, 353, Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. What I described otherwise is, is, is played out more in other gospels. But you see, this is like an absolutely critical question that Jesus wants his people to come to terms with. You know, all these other gods, what about me? Am I just one of many? <clears throat> now, these folks had had time with Jesus. And they, I'm sure, would have had lots of opportunity to ask this question of themselves. Who do you say I am? They would have seen him raise the dead, they would have seen him heal people from blindness and from being lame and unable to walk. They would have seen Jesus calm the storm and, and, and walk on water. They would have seen Jesus feeding 5,000 people from a, a young boy's lunch. They would have had tons of ideas to stand back and say, who is this man? As we talked about last week, the king, the royal one, speaking with authority, talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not like one of them, but as someone in Entirely different, speaking with the authority of God, turning over tables, uh, money changers' tables in the temple, which were keeping people from praying. He going in there with confidence and with courage and with righteous judgment. Who do you say who I am? You see how penetrating this question is for followers of Jesus? 
Well, it was Peter who, who came with the, with the right answer. You are the Messiah, again in Matthew, the son of the living God. Um, you are not one of many. You are the son of God. Now, millions of people have had to ask this question. Um, for two millennia now, people have looked at Jesus and they've considered who he was and they've considered what he said and they have considered what he has done and they have asked the question, who is this man? And I want us to look at some of the answers that have been given. Um, some of the answers in, even in our own day that ha have and are floating around that some people can buy into. What is your answer to the question? Some people say, well, you know what, he was, um, uh, he, he was a, a good man, a decent fellow. He's a good guy, right? I mean, look at his life. He was good to people. He was good to children. He was good to sinners. He, he was far more ready to forgive them than to condemn them. He, he, he walked toward them, not away from them. He wanted to make them his friend. He, he was called the send, uh, friend of sinners, he taught in remarkable, absolutely stunning ways so that even people who in our world in, in recent times, like, like Gandhi, for example, they read the teaching, the moral teaching of Jesus, and, and they're utterly amazed by it, saying it's some of the best that's ever been written. So yeah, I mean, he was a good man, and, and, and goodness dwelt in him. He was a really decent guy. But he also claimed to be the son of man. 79 times he claimed to be the son of man. Let me read a passage to you um, which includes this, and, and, and then we'll go to another passage which will explain it. Again, page 235. It says here, he, Jesus, began to teach them that the son of man, and that's a reference to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for this soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glo Father's glory with the holy angels. See, Jesus said, you know what? I am the son of man. I am the son of man. And immediately in the mind of those disciples, they would have been taken to a passage, probably many passages, but their minds would have been taken to a passage like Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14 in the Old Testament. I'm going to read it to you. Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. <laughs> Jesus knew that passage. The disciples would have known that passage. And when Jesus says, that Peter is right when he, Peter says that you are the Messiah, 
the Son of God. And, 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 and Jesus then comes along and, and calls himself the Son of Man. It's absolutely clear what Jesus is saying. He, from Daniel, is me. I am the one. Jesus is claiming divinity for, him, for himself, no question. It's, it's, it's similar to when Jesus, through the Gospel of John, makes those I am statements, seven of them. For example, I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the living water, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and, and others. Keep focused on the I am reality when we read from 357, uh, John 8, verse 5 and following, where, where this interaction happens. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. Jesus speaking. At this, they exclaimed, the opposition. Now, that we, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever believe, obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Interesting question, right? It's not just who do we think he is. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, say it with me, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they want to kill him that day? Because he claimed to be God. Think about Moses, when Moses was in the wilderness and he met God in the burning bush and, 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 and God said, go free my people, uh, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And he had this argument with God because he didn't want to do it. And eventually Moses says, well, if I'm going to go, who will I tell them, the Israelites, who, who sent me? And you know what God said? Tell him, I am who I am sent you. The profound, mysterious, powerful name of God. You see, when Jesus was in this conversation, and he was throughout his ministry talking about this I am a dynamic, he was claiming divinity. No question. I have a question for you. Does someone who is just a good man, a decent fellow, do that? Does he walk into their lives as Jesus did and forgive their sin without having the power and the right to do it? Leaving them confused and maybe even deceived about what he had just done? Do decent fellows, good guys, do that sort of thing? Um... When Jesus said, and I've read the text for you, to his people, pick up your cross and follow me to death is the implication, clear implication. Um, and then 11 of those 12 disciples actually did that, dying for their faith as martyrs. I want to tell you, if Jesus is not divine and he claimed divinity and they died believing what he had said, to do this thing to these 11 men would be an act of evil. You see, de decent people, um, decent fellows, good guys, they don't do that. So to say he, he was a good man, just a good man, not enough. 
Some say, number two, he was a demented fool. C.S. Lewis talked about his little trilogy. He, in the book Mere Christianity, if you haven't read it, go read it. I'm sure it's in our library. But he said that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic or a lord. That's the little trilogy that he came up with. It's fantastic. And quite frankly, this demented fool uh, component in this C.S. Lewis trilogy is the lunatic part. He's demented. He's a fool. Um... Because you see, the reality is that people who are really crazy, crazy, really struggling mentally, they sometimes do think they are God. But we don't believe them. You know, we try to get them help, and we try to get them medication, and we hospitalize them, and the right psychiatric treatment to get their brain chemistry rebalanced and healthy. We don't believe them. But could Jesus be this sort of person, a crazy man, a lunatic? A man who did so much good, could he be a fool? Could it be that the greatest influence in the history of the world was nuts? It's, it's the possibility that is suggested to us. Could it be that the people who knew him, the 12 and others who traveled with the 12 through his ministry, many women as well as men, who lived in close relationship with him. And then the 120 who were huddled in the upper room to whom he appeared. And then the 500, essentially, that he met with and spoke with and taught before the ascension to heaven. Could it be that he fooled all of them into thinking he was something that he was not? Could they not have seen this demented fool component in him? What about this idea don't you think lunatics produce lun lunatics? Think about Hitler. Who did he produce? Who followed him? Goring and Goebbels and so forth. These people seemed rational, but you know what? Something not working well very consistently in order to kill six million Jews and so many more people. But what has Jesus produced over centuries and now millennia, over and over and over again? People who have taken his teaching uh, at, at, uh, to heart and have lived it out. The influence of so many of his people has so been and so incredibly good. And I want to tell you, my friends, if you look at Jesus, when you look at how he lived, you look at what he taught, you look at ultimately what he did, we don't see a fool, we see someone with incredible wisdom. An incredibly wise man. So, if that's not it, could it be number three, as is suggested? Could it be that, as some people say, Jesus is a deceiving fraud? A fraud. It's possible. I'm going to come and I'm going to lie to everybody about who I am and I'm going I'm to swindle my way through this and we'll see where things go. Essentially, if you've read this, the chapter, you'll know that Pharisees said to people that he was deceiving others. And I, as a result, obviously dangerous. The idea is that, that, you know, he was a swindler, he was a con artist. But my friends, we've got to think about claims like that. We really do. Every one of Jesus' 36 miracles, you know, the water to wine, the calming the storm, the casting him out, out of demons, the raising of Lazarus and a little girl and a young man uh, from the dead, Everything that he did where he exercised the power of God in, in the display of his royal authority, as we talked about last week. Everything he did, he did to bless other people. 
Everything he did, not for his own sake, but for the sake of those who were in need and needed the love of God to just flood into their lives. And then there were times, rather than having his own reputation expand and develop, he actually said to people whom he blessed and, and in whom miracles had occurred, he said, don't tell anybody I've done this. Just keep it to yourself. See, here's the deal. Con artists and frauds do what they do for their own sake so that they end up better off, right? They'll rip you off and they'll rip me off in order that they can have more that they think their life has been enhanced how did Jesus end up? Well, he ended up alone and abandoned and betrayed. He ended up beaten, crucified, and dead of his own choice and volition. You know why the church took off after the resurrection? Have you ever really thought about that? And it became a massive movement of growth. Well, people saw Jesus alive. If you see somebody crucified and dead and actually put in a grave and then you see him alive, that's a fairly astounding reality and worth telling people about. But I want to suggest to you too that they knew Jesus' heart. They believed to their core that he was sincere and that he was good. They believed with all of their hearts that out of love he had come and died for the salvation of the world. The church of Christ took off because these people knew he was no fraud. I want to suggest this morning if he's not just a decent fellow and if he's not a demented fool and if he's not a deceiving fraud, what is left over? And again, what do you think? Well, I want, I want to give you two, um, two things to reflect on as we look at the dynamic, the reality of, of what is given to us in Scripture. Um, number one, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is a divine friend. I'm going to read John 15, verse 9. It's a little out of order, but uh, I want you to hear this. John 15, 9 to 15. Jesus speaking, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Hear the goodness. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Isn't that remarkable? He wants you to know such joy. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. I no longer call you servants. I have called you friends. See, what Jesus is saying to us is, I have come that I might become your friend. I have I've come into this world and, and I will lay down my life. And he did lay down his life so that we could be, we could, we could believe in him ultimately and we could receive him into our lives and we could be forgiven of our sin 
and become a, a child of God so that we might become his friend. I want to tell you, my friends, it, this poses the question to us as we think about who do we say Jesus is. I'm going to ask you, do you think he's your friend? Do you think of him in those terms? So many people think of a relationship with God and it's characterized by servitude or by fear or obligation. Um, sometimes by distance, oh, keep him away. But I want you to know this morning that Jesus comes into our, life, our lives through John 15 and he says, I want you to think of me as your friend. What do friends do? Well, friends know each other really well. S friends spend time together. They hang out. You hang out with Jesus? I mean it. Because you want to. It says in the Bible that we are, we are to know him. It says that we're to know his voice. It says that we're to enjoy him, the joy that comes from relationship with him. It goes on and on. It's also very cool, not so much only do we have to think about what we think about Jesus. Here, Jesus tells us what he thinks about us. <laughs> you might not believe it. You might not be yet there in your head, but Jesus said, I want to call you my friends. His view of you is one of friend. And he wants to hang out with you. And he wants to share his heart with you. And he wants to know your voice. And he wants to be with you and help you when he can. There's this relationship that's being described, and it's a remarkable relationship, this divine friend of Jesus. Where, and we've talked about all this, this all along since the Garden of Eden, the separation took place, and Jesus said, I want, I want to find reconciliation with you. And it's not just as slaves... That word servants is the word doulos in Greek. It could be easily trans translated slaves, where you have to do everything I tell you because I'm your owner and you have to do it. No, Jesus said, come into relationship with me and become my friend. We can talk together and we can walk together. We can enjoy each other's company. We can learn to hear each other's voices. We can do life together. Another thing I want to finish with as we move toward finish, um, it's something I thought of when, when, when we recognized Peter was the one who stood before Jesus and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. I wonder what he thought in that moment. The son of the living God. The one, as we've talked about in recent weeks, who was present and active as creator in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, everlasting God. I don't know about you, but I would have probably been shaking a little bit. <laughs> because if you really believe that to be true, it's like, oh my goodness. Let me read to you Matthew 17, 1 to 8. It's, it's uh, 354 in our text. This is an experience that uh, three, the inner circle of Jesus, three of his closest friends had with him as he walked here on earth. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. 
His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. This guy just opened his mouth and started talking when he was nervous, right? I mean, I know people like that. While he was speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Recognize those words? Where have we heard them before? It's baptism. Man, the Father again affirming in such similar fashion who Jesus was. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't, don't, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. You know what happened in that day? In the life of Peter, James, and John? Jesus opened a door for them to see into the spiritual realm in a way that they had never seen him before. He, he allowed them to gaze into the reality of who he really was. And they ended up flat on their faces, terrified. They didn't need to, but they did. You know what, my friends? In our own way, Jesus today comes here to show us who he is. He comes into our lives in various ways at various times. And he asks the question, who do you say that I am? And then by his spirit in some mysterious and remarkable way that happens in some and not other people, we can't understand it, we can't define it, we can't proscribe it. But there are moments in, the, in time and in, in the lives of human beings where the door simply opens up and people understand who Jesus really is. And like Peter, they recognize, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one sent from God, the son of the living God. And in that moment, that man's life was changed dramatically. And what we see in Peter's experience is that he, he left everything to follow Christ. The focus of his life, first and foremost and primary beyond many, many other considerations, the focus of his life was following Jesus, having relationship with Jesus, and being faithful to Jesus in the ministry that we, he was given. And I guess I'm here today to ask you the question, my friends, has the door been opened in your life, in your heart and in your mind, so that you have come to see who Jesus truly is? Because when Jesus shows us who he is, when we recognize, not just a good guy, not a fool, not a fraud, but he is the son of God who came into this world to make it new, to transform people's lives as they experience faith in him, <clears throat> but also to change this world as he built his church so that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it that the gates of Hades would crumble in the advance of the church of Christ. See, the conclusion to this whole talk today is, you know, we, you know, we all have our own Caesarea Philippi, every single one of us here. Um, there's a plethora of gods that people worship today. They're different. As far as I'm aware, you don't worship the god Pan, nor do you worship a Caesar. 
nor do you worship Syrian gods and other gods I could describe to you. You just don't do it. But what are the gods we worship potentially today? Well, we worship the god of secularism, the god of atheism, the god of materialism, the god of consumerism, the god of sexuality, the god of money, potentially. See, each of these things we turn to, we turn away from God, and we turn to them, and we look for these things to satisfy the deepest longings in our, in our heart for safety and for security and for purpose, for belonging and so forth. That we think these things, not Jesus, but these things are going to satisfy my soul because we long for our souls to be satisfied. As Adam and Eve's souls were once satisfied in Eden. Into that context of our plethora of gods, Jesus today speaks to us. He says, who... Who do you say that I am? Am I just one of many gods before whom you bow? Am I just one of many gods whom you live for? Who you give your heart to? <laughs> whom you seek in order to receive what you need in your life? Or am I a God who rises so far above them? The exalted Son of God, the creator of the world and the universe can come into your life because of the cross simply by you believing in what I did then is effective for you today so much so that you seek forgiveness from God in my name and are given it so that you're becoming a child of God but you come you know what even more than that you become my friend and we can do life together from this point on that blows me away that I can go home this afternoon and I can sit in my chair in the quietness of that room, and I can close my eyes, and then I can enter into dialogue with my friend, the creator of the world. There may be people here today, and I say this so often, but it's so, so important. There may be people here today who say, you know, I haven't yet come to that place, but today God's opening the door. He, he, he's pulling back the, the, the curtains so that I can see spiritual reality. And I'm beginning to get it. I, I'm beginning to believe who Jesus said he was. And if that's you and if you're ready, I would simply say receive him into your heart as the son of God. Believe in him as that. Believe that what he did on the cross can be effective for you. Ask God to forgive your sin in his name and it will be done as a result. And then move into that life of worship and of serving, of obedience, of picking up crosses even to the point of death, of doing anything for this one named Jesus, but doing it all in the context of a loving and deep friendship with him. I'll say it again. The day Peter realized who Jesus was, from that day forward, if it hadn't changed before, everything would have changed. Because when we know who he is, then we need to respond to that reality by how we live. Everything changes. See, if we get Jesus right, we will worship him. We will worship him from the depth of our being. And we will serve him with our whole heart. And we will love him. And we will obey him. And if need be, we will pick up our cross and go to death. 
Not likely a lot of us here will need to, but what that means for us is we'll do anything, anything for Jesus because we're not living for ourselves and our own good anymore. We are living entirely for him. My friends, I just want to leave you this question to ponder and to process. And I implore you to come to a conclusion to the question, but who do you say that I am? And of course, I would encourage you to answer like Peter. Recognize Jesus for whom Jesus claimed to be. Live your life before him. Serve him, love him, obey him, and worship him with all that you are. Let's pray. Lord, a lot of people say a lot of things about you, and they're just wrong. And we know that, Lord, because you came, the Son of God, the Son of Man, anointed by the Father, the Eternal One, you came and you told us who you are. You made it so abundantly clear. God, I pray for people today who may be struggling a bit with this. Maybe it's new to them. Maybe they have thought about it but never really dug in. I pray you'll help them to dig in, knowing that this is one of the most important questions they'll ever answer. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help them to consider the possibilities and recognize that in the end, Jesus can only be who he said he was. And I pray, Lord, you'll lead many people here to simply receive Christ by faith, to seek the forgiveness of God in him, and to move into a relationship of friendship with their Lord. Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, help us to do this almost all the time. Help us just to come into Christ's presence and acknowledge him, love him, do life with him. Lord, let, let this relationship transform our lives so that we're never the same again. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, by your spirit and lead us forward. Make us those who know and love Jesus with all of our hearts those who live for him in everything that we do. This we pray in his name.